Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Inside the Writer's Studio is a popular and unpredictable on-stage, unscripted conversation, this time between studio guest George Saunders and Lighthouse fiction instructor Nick Arvin. Saunders was recently awarded the Story Prize and the Folio Prize for his collection of short stories, 10th of December. He writes for The New Yorker and GQ, and his work has appeared in Best American Short Stories and a number of other anthologies. In 2006, he was awarded both a Guggenheim Fellowship and a MacArthur Fellowship and has taught at Syracuse University since 1996. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Good? Wonderful. My name is Mike Henry, and I'm the Executive Director at Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Writers' Studio with George Saunders. It's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, Nick Arvin grew up in Clio, Michigan, and earned degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Michigan and Stanford. He's worked in automotive engineering, forensic engineering, and the design of power plants and oil and gas facilities. Oh, and by the way, Nick holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. He's offered three books, In the Electric Eden, Articles of War, and The Reconstructionist. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, 5280 Magazine, Salon, and Salon, and he's been honored with numerous awards, including the Rosenthal Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Boyd Award from the American Library Association, the Colorado Book Award, and fellowships from the Michener Copernicus Society, the Isherwood Foundation, and the National Endowment for the arts. Please join me in welcoming Nick Arvin. Hey, everyone. (laughs) All these people here for a short story writer. I think this is so awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm a writer, so I wrote this down. In 1993, I was 19 years old, studying engineering in college. And one day I was home visiting my parents, and I picked up a copy of Harper's Magazine. My parents always had copies of The New Yorker and Harper's lying around on the coffee table. And I'd read some of the stories in The New Yorker, and I'd come to the conclusion that New Yorker stories were all about divorce and boring. But I liked some of the stories in Harper's. In this particular issue, there was a story about a terrifically fat man who works for a pest removal company. If you had a problem raccoon, this company would come and capture it. As they put the raccoon into their pest removal van, they would assure you that they would promptly convey the raccoon to a forest paradise, where the raccoon would romp free. And then they took the raccoon back to their office, beat it with a tire iron, and threw the body into a pit. This was a little dark, but also hilarious, and powered by an incredible manic energy, unlike anything I'd ever read before, and I loved it. A couple of years later, around the end of college, I'd finally worked up the courage to try writing some serious fiction, seriously try to write fiction myself. And I found myself still thinking about that story about the fat guy and the raccoons. 
a lot. I wanted to figure out how to write like that, and I wanted to read the story again. But there was a problem. I didn't remember the title of the story, and I didn't remember the name of the author. A sensible person would have gone to the library and looked through old issues of Harper's, but engineers are not actually especially sensible people. And that idea didn't cross my mind. I was spending a lot of time loitering at the bookstore anyway, and what I did was I began going through all the story collections on the fiction shelves, one by one, looking for the fat guy story. The thing about the fat guy story was that the voice was so distinctive. I believed I would only need to read a line or two to recognize it. And sure enough, after a couple of months, I found it. (laughs) In a book titled Civil War Land in Bad Decline. The story was the 400-pound CEO, and the name of the author was George Saunders. Ever since then, I've kept an eye on that George Saunders guy. Since then, he has published three more books of short stories, a book of essays, a novella, and a children's book. His work has appeared in the O. Henry series, Best American Short Stories, Best Non-Required Reading, Best American Travel Writing, and Best Science Fiction. He has been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, a MacArthur Fellowship, and an Academy Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He's appeared on the Charlie Rose Show, Late Night with David Letterman, and the Colbert Rapport. <laughs> entertainment Weekly named him one of the 100 top most creative people in entertainment. And I have to mention, he studied engineering down the road at the Colorado School of Mines. <laughs> he teaches writing at Syracuse University. I love George Saunders' work. I love it because it's funny when many literary writers want to be serious. I love it because it is often about service work and financial anxiety, topics that most literary writers avoid. I love it because he writes short stories, a form that supposedly the general reader has abandoned. And I love it because he captures the contemporary American vernacular better than anyone else. Over the years, I've tried to press George Saunders' books on a number of people, And when I'm doing this attempted pressing, one of the things I tell people is that I'm convinced Saunders is one of the very few contemporary writers that people will still be reading 100 years from now. I say it because I believe it is true, and I believe it is true not just because he is a terrific writer. There are many terrific writers in the world. Saunders has something that only very, very rare writers have, which is an utterly distinctive voice and vision of the world. What do I mean by that? I mean that great writers capture life in a way that we recognize as life, and yet in a way that no one else has shown it to us before. A great writer captures certain things that we have always seen but never noticed. And then, having noticed, we see these things here and there all the time. And so we say that certain situations are Kafkaesque or Faulknerian, or we might say that dude is straight out of Hemingway. And there are certain strange situations, certain turns of conversation, certain manic internal trains of thought that we can now recognize as Saunders-esque. If you've read his work, you know what I mean. Before you read Saunders, you didn't know those moments weren't anything at all. They were just stuff that happened. But then you read Saunders, and then you know they're Saunders-esque. 
It is my great honor to present George Saunders. Thank you, Nick. That was so, so wonderful. I really appreciate it. And I want to just sort of congratulate the city of Denver for having this great thing called Lighthouse. It's so, and for supporting it so beautifully. It's, I, I, did, I didn't know much about it. And today, everything has been so uh, perfectly done. And, uh, you know, I teach at Syracuse, and there, we got this year 660 applications for six spots in our program. And um, I was telling Andrea earlier, out of, and so we get to pick six. That's it. Uh, but out of that, probably 150 of those people were immensely talented. And it was, it's a, as I'm getting into my 90th year, it's increasingly heartbreaking to have to send out those letters uh, because they don't mean what they seem to mean. They don't mean you're not a writer. They mean we only have money for six places. So I, I'm kind of predicting there's going to be a, a backlash or kind of a swing of the pendulum. Uh, and this kind of program is such a wonderful model. I'm very, very happy to know about it. So congratulations. Um, nice to be back in Colorado and not have to be worried about a test. Um, okay, so I thought I'd read out of air on the side of reading a little short. Um, I, w- I was one time in a, uh, I had this Polish driver in New York City, and, and he said, uh, Sir, you, you go now to do your reading. I said, Yeah. He said, A uh, little advice for you don't read too long. And I, I, I was like, Oh, you know my work. And, but he said, No, the people don't like The people don't like so, so I'll take his advice. But, uh, and also, I always have the funny, you know, you come to a town like this, you meet so many nice people, such a beautiful venue, and then I scan what I have to read, and it's all so perverse. And so I, I, I'm, I'm working on a story about a, a compassionate collie, and I'll have that done next time, but this time I don't have it. So I apologize in advance, but, you know, I, tomorrow I'm going to talk a little bit uh, in the class, uh, and there's a wonderful quote, Flannery O'Connor said, uh, a writer can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. And uh, that's been the kind of strange story of my writing career. Is I, you think you're this kind of writer, and then the, when the energy comes, it comes in a different flavor, and you just have to accept it. So this is, um, I think it's mostly self-explanatory, but sometimes when you transfer a story out loud, it, it isn't. So this guy, this narrator, is a youngish guy uh, who's in a kind of new-style prison uh, where he's basically, uh, he gets sort of nicer a nicer setting in exchange for being sort of an um, experimental lab rat, kind of. And so throughout this, they're going to be injecting drugs into him, which you'll hopefully notice. Um, and they, he's got a thing called the Mobipack trademark, which is a kind of a, kind of a, I don't know, it's a little bit like a cell phone that's been sutured into his back, something like that, if you can imagine. So, yes, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to read just a few sections, and I'm going to do what they used to say on, on Reading Rainbow, leave you hanging. So uh, this is just a few sections from the story called Escape from Spiderhead. Drip on, Abnesti stood over the PA. What's in it, I said. Hilarious, he said. Acknowledge, I said. Abnesti uses remote. My Mobipack word. Soon, the interior garden looked really nice. Everything seemed super clear. I said out loud, as I was supposed to, what I was feeling. A garden looks nice, I said, super clear. Abnesti said, uh, Jeff, how about we pep up those language centers? Sure, I said. Uh, drip on, he said. Acknowledge, I said. He added some verbalus to the drip, and soon I was feeling the same things, but saying them better. 
The garden still looked nice. It was like the bushes were so tight-seeming and the sun made everything stand out. It was like any moment you expected some Victorians to wander in with their cups of tea. It was as if the garden had become a sort of embodiment of the domestic dreams forever intrinsic to human consciousness. <laughs> it was as if I could suddenly discern in this contemporary vignette the ancient corollary through which Plato and some of his contemporaries might have strolled. <laughs> to wit, I was sensing the eternal in the ephemeral. I sat pleasantly engaged in these thoughts until the verbalus began to wane, at which point the garden just looked nice again. It was something about the bushes and whatnot. It made you just want to lay out there and catch rays and think your happy thoughts, if you get what I mean. Then whatever else was in that drip wore off, and I didn't feel much about the garden one way or the other. My mouth was dry, though, and my gut had that post-verbalus feel to it. What's going to be cool about that one, Epines, you said, is say a guy has to stay up late guarding a perimeter, or is at school waiting for his kid and gets bored, but there's some nature nearby... Or say a park ranger has to work a double shift. That'll be cool, I said. That's ED763, he said. We're thinking of calling it Nature Glide. <laughs> or maybe Earth Admirer. Those are both good, I said. Thanks for your help, Jeff, he said. Which is what he always said. Only a million years to go, I said. Which is what I always said. Then he said, exit the uh, interior garden now, Jeff. Head over to small workroom two. Into small workroom two, they sent this pale, tall girl. Uh, what do you think? Epinesti said over the PA. Me, I said, or her? Uh, both, Epinesti said. Pretty good, I said. Fine, you know, she said, normal. <laughs> Epinesti asked us to rate each other more quantifiably as per pretty, as per sexy. It appeared we liked each other about average i.e. no big attraction or revulsion either way. Epinesi said, uh, Jeff, drip on. Acknowledge, I said. Heather, drip on, he said. Acknowledge, Heather said. Then we looked at each other like, what happens next? What happened next was, Heather soon looked super good. <laughs> and I could tell she thought the same of me. It, it came on so sudden, we were like laughing. How could we not have seen it? How cute the other one was. Luckily, there was a couch in the workroom. <laughs> it felt like our drip had, in addition to whatever, they were testing some ED556 in it, which lowers your shame level to like nil. <laughs> because soon, there on the couch, off we went. It was super hot between us. And, and not merely in a horn dog way. Hot, yes, but also just right. Like if you dreamed of a certain girl all your life, and all of a sudden, there she was in your same workroom. Uh, Jeff, Abnasi said, I'd like your permission to pep up your language centers. Go for it, I said, under her now. Drip on, he said. Acknowledge, I said. Me too, Heather said. You got it, Abnasi said with a laugh. Drip on. Acknowledge, she said, all breathless. Soon, experiencing the benefits of the flowing verbalus in our drips, we were not only fucking really well, but also talking pretty great. Like, instead of just saying the sex-type things we had been saying, such as, wow, and oh, God, and hell yes, and so forth, <laughs> we now began freestyling RER sensations and thoughts in elevated diction with 8% increased vocab. <laughs> Our well-articulated thoughts being recorded for later analysis. For me, the feeling was approximately, 
astonishment at the dawning realization that this woman was being created in real time directly from my own mind per my deepest longings. Finally, after all these years, was my thought, I had found the precise arrangement of body, face, mind that personified all that was desirable. The taste of her mouth, the look of that halo of blondish hair spread out around her cherubic yet naughty-looking face. She was beneath me now, legs up. Even not to be crude or dishonor the exalted feelings I was experiencing, the sensations her vagina were producing along the length of my thrusting penis were precisely those I had always hungered for. (laughs) Though I had never before this instant realized that I so ardently hungered for them. That is to say... A desire would arise, and concurrently, the satisfaction of that desire would also arise. It was as if, A, I longed for a certain heretofore untasted taste, until B, said longing became nearly unbearable, at which time C, I found a morsel of food with that exact taste already in my mouth, perfectly satisfying my longing. Every utterance, every adjustment of posture bespoke the same thing. We had known each other forever were soulmates, had met and loved in numerous preceding lifetimes, and would meet and love in many subsequent lifetimes, always with the same transcendently stupefying results. Then there came a hard-to-describe but very real drifting off into a number of sequential reveries that might best be described as a type of non-narrative mind scenery, i.e. a series of vague mental images of places I had never been, a certain pine-packed valley in high white mountains, a chalet-type house in a cul-de-sac the yard of which was overgrown with wide, stunted, Susian trees, each of which triggered a deep sentimental longing, longings that coalesced into and were soon reduced to one central longing, i.e. an intense longing for Heather and Heather alone. This mind scenery phenomenon was strongest during our third bout of lovemaking. Apparently, Hebnesti had included some vivistiff in my drip. (laughs) Afterward, our protestations of love poured poured forth simultaneously, linguistically complex and metaphorically rich. I dare say we had become poets. We were allowed to lie there, limbs intermingled for nearly an hour. It was bliss. It was perfection. It was that impossible thing, happiness that does not wilt to reveal the thin shoots of some new desire rising from within it. We cuddled with the fierceness focus that rivaled the fierceness focus with which we had fucked. There was nothing less about cuddling vis-a-vis fucking is what I mean to say. We were all over each other in the super-friendly way of puppies or spouses meeting for the first time after one of them has undergone a close brush with death. Everything seemed moist, permeable, sayable. Then something in the drip began to wane. I think Abnesti had shut off the verbalus, also the shame reducer. (laughs) Basically, everything began to dwindle. Suddenly, we felt shy, but still loving began the process of trying to talk at prey verbal loose, always awkward. Yet I could see in her eyes that she was still feeling love for me. And I was definitely still feeling love for her. Well, why not? We just fucked three times. Why do you think they call it making love? That is what we just made three times, love. Then Amnesty said, drip on. We'd kind of forgotten he was even there behind his one-way mirror. I said, do we have to? We are really liking this right now. Uh, We're just going to try to get you guys back to baseline, he said. We've got more to do today. Shit, I said. Rats, she said. Drip on, he said. Acknowledge, we said. Soon, something began to change. I mean, she was fine. A handsome, pale girl. But nothing special. And I could see that she felt the same R.E. me, i.e., what had all that fuss been about just now? Why weren't we dressed? We, We real quick got dressed. 
kind of embarrassing. Did I love her? Did she love me? Ha, no. Then it was time for her to go. We shook hands. (laughs) Out she went. Lunch came in on a tray, spaghetti with chicken chunks. Man, was I hungry. I spent all lunchtime thinking. It was weird. I had the memory of fucking Heather, the memory of having felt the things I'd felt for her, the memory of having said the things I'd said to her. My throat was like raw from how much I'd said and how fast I'd felt compelled to say it. But in terms of feelings, I basically had not a left. Just a hot face and some shame already having fucked three times in front of Ebnesty. <laughs> After lunch, in came another girl. About equally so-so. Dark hair, average build. Nothing special. Just like upon first entry, Heather had been nothing special. This is Rachel, Ebnessi said on the PA. This is Jeff. Hi, Rachel, I said. Hi, Jeff, she said. Drip on, Ebnessi said. We acknowledged. Something felt very familiar about the way I now began feeling. Suddenly, Rachel looked super good. Abnesti requested permission to pep up our language centers via verbalus. We acknowledged. Soon we too were fucking like bunnies. Soon we too were talking like articulate maniacs, re our love. Once again, certain sensations were arising to meet my concurrently arising desperate hunger for just those sensations. Soon my memory of the perfect taste of Heather's mouth was being overwritten by the current taste of Rachel's mouth. So much more the taste I now desired. I was feeling unprecedented emotions, even though those unprecedented emotions were, I discerned somewhere in my consciousness, exactly the same emotions I had felt earlier for that now unworthy-seeming vessel, Heather. Rachel was, I mean to say, it. Her lithe waist, her voice, her hungry mouth, hands, loins, they were all it. I just loved Rachel so much. Then came the sequential geographic reveries, see above, Same pine-packed valley, same chalet-looking house, accompanied by that same longing for place, transmuting into a longing for, this time, Rachel, while continuing to enact a level of sexual strenuousness that caused what I would describe as a gradually tightening, chest-located sweetness rubber band to both connect us and compel us onward, we whispered feverishly, precisely, poetically, about how long we felt we had known each other, i.e., forever. Again, the total number of times we made love was three. Then, like before, came the dwindling. Our talking became less excellent. Words are fewer, our sentences shorter. Still, I loved her, loved Rachel. Everything about her just seemed perfect. Her cheek mole, her black hair, the little butt squirm she did now and then, as if to say, mm-mm, was that ever good? <laughs> Drip on, Ebnessi said, we are going to try to get you both back to baseline. Acknowledge, she said. Well, hold on, I said. Jeff, Ebnessi said, irritated, if if trying to remind me that I was not here by choice, but because I had done my crime and was in the process of doing my time. Acknowledge, I said, and gave Rachel one last look of love, knowing, as she did not yet know, that this would be the last look of love I would be giving her. Soon she was merely fine to me, and I merely fine to her. She looked as had Heather, embarrassed, as in, what was up with that just now? Why did I just go so overboard with Mr. Average here? (laughs) Did I love her or her me? No. When it was time for her to go, we shook hands. 
The place where my MOBA pack was surgically joined to my lower back was sore from all our positional changes. Plus, I was way tired. Plus, I was feeling so sad. Why sad? Was I not a dude? Had I not just fucked two different girls for a total of six times in one day? Still, honestly, I felt sadder than sad. I guess I was sad that love was not real, or not all that real anyway. I, I guess I was sad that love could feel so real and the next minute be gone, and all because of something Abnesti was doing. After snack, Abnesti called me into control, control being like the head of a spider, with his various legs being our workrooms. Sometimes we were called upon to work alongside Abnesti in the head of the spider, or as we termed it, the spider head. Sid, he said, look in the large, you know, uh, Sid, he said, look in the large workroom one. In large workroom one were Heather and Rachel, side by side. Recognize them, he said. Ha, I said. Now, Abnesti said, I'm going to present you with a choice, Jeff. This is what we're playing at here. See this remote? Let's say you can hit this button and Rachel gets some darkened flocks. Or you can hit this button and Heather gets a darkened flock. See, you choose. They've got darkened flocks in their mobile packs, I said. You've all got darkened flocks in your mobile packs, dummy, Abnesi said affectionately. Verlaine just put it there Wednesday in anticipation of this very study. Well, that made me nervous. Imagine the worst you have ever felt times ten. That does not even come close to how bad you feel on darkened flocks. The time it was administered to us in orientation briefly for demo purposes at one-third the dose now selected on Abnesi's remote, I have never felt so terrible. All of us were just moaning, heads down, like how could we have ever felt life was worth living? I do not even like to think about that time. What's your decision, Jeff? Ebnessi said. Is Rachel getting the darken flocks or Heather? I can't say, I said. You have to, he said. I, I can't, I said. It would be like random. You feel your decision would be random, he said. Yes, I said. And that was true. I really didn't care. It was like if I put you in the spider head and gave you the choice... Which of these two strangers would you like to send into the shadow of the valley of death? Ten seconds, Abnesi said. What we're testing for here is any residual fondness. It wasn't that I liked them both. Honestly, I felt completely neutral toward both. It was as if I'd never seen, much less fucked, either one. They had really succeeded in taking me back to baseline, I guess I'm saying. But having once been dark and flocks, I just didn't want to do that to anyone. Even if I didn't like the person very much, even if I hated the person, I still wouldn't want to do it. Five seconds, Abnesi said. I can't decide, I said. It's random. Truly random, he said. Okay, I'm giving the darkened flocks to Heather. I just sat there. No, actually, he said, I'm giving it to Rachel. Just sat there. Jeff, he said, you have convinced me. It would to you be random. You truly have no preference. I can see that. And therefore, I don't have to do it. See what we just did with your help for the first time? Via the ED-289 suite? which is what we've been testing today, you have to admit it, you were in love. Twice, right? Yes, I said. Very much in love, he said. Twice. I said, yes, I said. But you just now express no preference, he said. Ergo, no trace of either of those great loves remains. You are totally cleansed. We brought you high, laid you low, and now here you sit. The same emotion-wise as before our testing even began. That is powerful. That is killer. We've unlocked the mysterious eternal secret. What a fantastic game-changer. Say someone can't love. Now he or she can. We can make him. Say someone loves too much or loves someone deemed unsuitable by his or her caregiver. We can tone that shit right down. Say someone is blue because of true love. We step in or his or her caregiver does. Blue no more. 
No longer in terms of emotional controllability are we ships adrift. No one is. We see a ship adrift, we climb aboard, install a rudder, guide him or her toward love or away from it. You say, all you need is love? Look, here comes ED-289. <laughs> can we stop war? We can sure as heck slow it down. Suddenly the soldiers on both sides start fucking. <laughs> or at low dosage, feeling super fond. Or say we have two rival dictators in a death grudge. Assuming ED-289 develops nicely in pill form, allow me to slip each dictator a mickey. Soon their tongues are down each other's throat and doves of peace are pooping on their epaulettes. Or depending on the dosage, they may just be hugging. And who helped us do that? You did. All this time, Rachel and Heather had just been sitting there in large workroom one. That's it, gals, thanks, Abnessi said on the PA. And they left, neither knowing how close they had come to getting darkened flocks out their wing-wings. Can I go to bed now, I said. Not yet, Abnessi said. It is ours to go before you sleep. Then he sent me into small workroom three, where some dude I didn't know was sitting. And I'll pause there. Thank you. That was terrific. Thank you. Cheerful little fable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I know we have a lot of writers in the audience. I thought we'd... I'd like to start with process and maybe like start with that story and um, like what was the germ or where what was the, the first point where that story came from? Well, I think as I remember it, uh, the main thing was I'd been writing a lot of stories in that first voice that kind of, uh, I wouldn't say dumb, but maybe 20% more dumber than I actually really am. Uh, and, you know, kind of suppressing uh, my verbal ability just a little bit. And I was getting kind of tired of it. And so I... Um, one day I just started typing something in a higher register, you know, that I, and I've actually never really, I've probably never done that before or published something like that before. So uh, then I just was looking at the two things side by side and I kind of thought, how do you get from there to there in the same story, if in the same character? So that was probably, and I thought, drugs, of course, drugs. Um, <laughs> and then the second thing that was kind of going on at the same time was I, when I was a kid, I had a really, uh, just the measles, but high fever. And I remember uh, being kind of thunderstruck by how bad life seemed in that state. I mean, my room was stupid. Everyone around me was so jerky and uh, Chicago sucked. Everything was terrible, you know, because of the sickness. And then, you know, this fever lifted and and I went back to me again. And I I was really struck by that idea that our, um, all these things we believe in so much, our personality, our moral character, our perceptions, our joy in life, uh, are very, you know, rigged to biology, basically. So I, kind of, I always wanted to sort of put that in a story, and those two things kind of came together, and I just, you know. Yeah. Right. And then do you, do you try to outline something, or do you, how do you go, like, once no, you have a kernel one, like that, where do you go with it? I, I, I'm kind of a, um, a proponent of the, of the idea that you, I try not to know where it's going at all. And I know people work in all different ways, you know, but for me, if I know where it's going, I tend to go there, you know, and, and it, uh, my... I think some people have sophisticated ways of thinking ahead, but mine are not sophisticated. So uh, if I think I know where I'm going and I go there, it's always kind of a disappointment. So I've learned to kind of uh, destabilize that a little bit. So in this one, I just kept thinking, well, the, the story has an energy and a logic that will keep producing the next scene. And in a way, that being a former engineer kind of helped because, okay, if you have a guy who we give you a sex drug and you have sex with one girl, that's not really good data yet. You know, so so you have to have a second one, uh, 
and then, so it was kind of, I mean, these guys aren't great scientists, you know, but, um, but so in, in the dream story for me, I just concentrate on one section, uh, mostly for, for sound and kind of jokes and, and energy and uh, all kind of, a whole suite of things. But then at some point, it'll actually kind of produce the next vector of plot just very naturally. And in, in a way, in a real fundamental way, like, um, you know, somebody will mention a character and you're like, who's that? Okay, well, they're going to come over, you know. So I, I really trust it when plot comes out of, sort of just naturally appears, almost like in biology with the seed crystals. You know, you put something in there and stuff just starts accruing to it. That I trust more than a plan. Huh. Yeah. And how long does it take you to put together a first draft? Is it, like, is it a pretty, are you able to charge through something or is it? Usually I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, uh, I imagine like if you had a long hallway you had to paint, you know, you're going, I, I'm, that's probably not a good metaphor because I don't ever paint a long hallway. But, you know, you, you kind of, you kind of, what I'm doing is I'm going a, a two or three pages and kind of stopping and going back and making sure that I, uh, the language in those two and three pages is really convincing me as if I was a first-time reader uh, that I, I always think I would stand behind those three pages. And also that once you do that, the three pages become the word I think of as undeniable. Like they kind of, they make that jump from, words on a page written by some writer who's trying to impress you to sort of like physical reality. It happened, you know. So usually when I get there, then I feel like I can go ahead. Um, so it's always different, but that's, the, that's my favorite mode is where you're just sort of one page, work, 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 work. Ooh, page and a half. Good, good, good. That seems good. Okay, are we ready to go ahead? Yeah, page three. And then just kind of gradually moving forward so that you'd be almost like if you were painting the fl- you know, a floor in a room you'd get to the doorway and look back and go, yeah, it looks pretty good, you know? And then you see this one footstep, and then you step out and paint that, you know? But it's, it's more pushing the ball ahead a couple yards at a time. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because the other writer I've heard talk about that writing process in that... Like, I don't write that way. I, I, I'll leave stuff behind and charge ahead. And yeah. um, that process of constantly refining what you're working on before moving forward is something that Tony Early talked about. Mm. Um, and he was talking, I saw him read from Jim the Boy, and he was talking about how incredibly difficult it was to get through a whole novel when he had to, like, that was his process. Yeah. And I'm experiencing that. Now, I'm working on something longer, and what I find I keep doing is, you know, you get sort of that um, creative excitement, and a scene will present, and you go, oh, that's about 40 pages on, and I'll write that. Or I do a lot of, like, bad cul de sacking where I'll, I'll take, write 30 or 40 pages and then realize later I don't need it. Uh, and, and something I'm trying to cure myself of is writing too far ahead because then what happens is you have four or five good scenes that you just have to use. That's not true. You know, the energy of the story might say, I don't want to go there. It's nice, but I don't want to go there. So I'm trying to keep myself playing by this rule, you know. But it's so, what I love about teaching writing is, um, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, but everybody's approach is totally different. There's no correct answer. And so it's almost like all you're trying to do in teaching writing is make a little poem about the process that is only useful or only true for you and maybe it's a little true for somebody else and they light up a little bit but it, you know it's um, I, I, I remember being on stage with T.C. Boyle and he said basically that he just doesn't rewrite he just goes straight ahead and, and, he, and it works you know so anything can, can work I guess right yeah. how do you know when you're done it's, yeah it's kind of you know I, I always say that there's um, I, I imagine that a little meter in my head that has positive over here and negative over here. And my main process thing is just to go and read what I've done yesterday and see what that needle is doing. Now, that's, of course, harder than it sounds because you have investments and attachments to what you did yesterday. But 
I'm, I think I'm, I've gotten better over the years. So really, I'm, I'm trying to get through the story with that needle pretty high, you know. Um, and sometimes, I mean, it takes me a long time. But then when the needle goes down, there's always something going on there. Like the language is off or there's an illogic uh, or there's a little bit of condescension that creeps in. So for me, the whole process is, is sort of watching my own mind as I'm reading and then being pretty willing to have the story say it's not good, you know. And then it literally, literally it's a little bit new age, but I kind of go to the story like, um, excuse me, but your page six kind of sucks. And the story will always go, like, I know, I know. I, didn't, I wasn't going to say anything, you know. Um, and, then, and then it seems to me that what I used to do when I was young was say, damn it. I know I have to go to law school, you bastard, you know. Uh, but, and, 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 and feel that you are, you know, defective because your story is, is defective. But now I feel like you can kind of say to it, what's, okay, so it's all right. Page six is boring. Not, what's, what's boring about it? And it's, I mean, kind of like with a kid, if you do that, the story will say, well, I'm glad you asked. And it'll tell you in some way, you know, and it'll tell you at a specific place in a text. And then you're okay. It's workable, you know. So um, kind of the idea that a story, like Stuart Dybeck says, a, steward is a, a story is always talking to you and your job is to listen, you know. And I know when I was younger, I thought maybe especially as a guy. And um, as an engineer. Yeah, as an engineer, that's right. I'm the master of this. I'll tell you how you're going to work, little story. Reader, sit there, and I'm going to pull up my, my manure truck full of ideas and dump it on you, you know. <laughs> so, so part of the thing is just to say the story has really a mind of its own, and it, the story is representing the better part of your intelligence, actually. And if you can kind of learn to work with that, then it might take you somewhere you didn't plan to go. Yeah. Did, uh, how long did you work on that story? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. That one was actually, for me, relatively quick. Uh, although, you know what I did, actually, now I think about it, I had pretty much written it as it is, almost. It didn't quite work. There was something off. And so I did that, which I'm sure some of you have done. I said, oh, it's not working as a story. It must be my novel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I spent a summer, and I did this really arrogant thing, which I can't believe I'm going to tell you, but I'm very tired. But it, I, I kept a, a, a notebook of my novel so that when I got done with it, that would be really cool to have a notebook of how I wrote it. And it's such a funny thing because it's all summer, to, uh, maybe four years ago. Uh, I think the novel is going to, you know, all this stuff. And, it, and then at the end of the summer, right before school started, I got that panic like, I have not finished anything, and this book is not going to be a novel. God, let me see if I can save it as a story. And from all that stuff that I'd written, and it was probably 180, 200 pages of pretty good stuff, there was one bit that I needed, and when I put it in, the ending popped and worked, you know. So then, I mean, it was basically I worked on the story all summer, but I just thought it was a, a novel. So I think it was probably six months, maybe total, seven months, yeah. which for me is pretty quick. You know. what's, what's the longest you've worked on the story? Fourteen years. And thank you for bringing up that painful story. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there's a story in here called Semple Girl Diaries that I, that I worked on for 14 years pretty steadily, you know. And, uh, yeah, 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 well, yeah. Thank you. You made it all worthwhile. <laughs> uh, but you, I mean, you, you weren't literally working on just that story. For no, no, years. I would just rotate it in every now and then and go, I know there's something to this, you know, and get stuck. I have this weird thing where I get stuck right at a, a certain place. Um, I can tell you the page now, right? And I just, then I spent all those years writing alternate endings from that point on and polishing them because how do you know if you don't polish it? And then on the, you know, the day of truth, Honey, I'm going to read Sumco Girl Diaries. My wife would be like, oh, poor bastard. And so I'd go out, and I'd hit that seam, and it just wouldn't work, you know. So then after a while, it became kind of a family joke. Like I, I uh, uh, so Yeah, so it, took, it just took a long... It's a hard story to finish, actually. It's, it's, um, it's got a weird set of rules that I had to really 
wait on to get, you know. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about that story in particular is a, that I admire is the way it restrains itself from explaining itself until, I mean, it, it allows the reader to discover what the hell's going on in a very gradual, and yeah. a way that's very natural to the voice of the story. Right. Well, um, that was part of the problem. You know, I, I think, and I'm sure the writers here will, you know, sometimes stories feel like Rubik's Cubes, and your judgment is supposed to be your best friend. That's all you've got, really. You know, you read your stuff and you react. And then I've getting, with that story, I got in a position where there were so many um, unknowns, you know, unknown variables speaking to one another. So there was that thing you mentioned where I really was holding back on spelling it out. I didn't want to be like that sci-fi writer who says, you know, like, if a sci-fi writer is writing a story about now, he says, Jim picked up his cellular phone, a small device with which he could communicate with other humans. Like, no one ever thinks that way. You know, so, so if you're writing a futuristic story, you have to remember that those people, you know, are, are, don't, so that was a problem. And then there was just about five or six different moving parts in that story. And I, so the, so the 14 years was, okay, let's make a decision about this one. Then the four are still moving. And that didn't work. So it was, it was really not that fun. It was pretty tedious, you know. Uh, but in the end, I think you do kind of learn. What I love about this job is that you learn about your own mind, really. You, le- you know, you, you learn about your relation to patience and your relation to expectation. You learn how resilient you are. Uh, and I find that it, it actually leaches out into the rest of your life in a nice way, you know. Because, I, you know, if you have the attitude towards a story that you don't know what it is, that it's of you but it's not you, uh, of a character that he might have depths that you, you know, haven't conceptualized, that you're going to wait there and listen quietly and see. That, that transfers to moments in real life all the time, you know, where you think, oh, I know what this situation is. And your writer's voice will say, well, maybe you don't, you know. I mean, that thing from Philadelphia story, you know, that the time to make up your mind about people is never kind of true in life and true in writing. Right, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you discover your... You, I mean, the whole process is a process of discovery, of discovering the characters and discovering what they're going to do. And also discovering your own shit. You know, the way that you um, defend things that aren't good, that's part of who you are, you know. The way that you're afraid of certain moments or, or, you know, like like I said about this Deflander O'Connor quote, I didn't really want to be the writer that I am now. I, I had a different idea of it, you know. Uh, Hemingway, Chekhov, that'd be nice. Toni Morrison. Um... (laughs) And then that kind of beautiful moment of truth, which for me happened at about 33 in an engineering company, where I said, man, I, I'm imitating all these people and nothing is cohering at all. And also I'm falsifying like crazy. You know, by that time we had two kids and I was working in, as a tech writer and, and I, knew, I knew some things about life, you know, about the unique weirdness of American capitalist life. I knew some stuff, but none of it was getting in my stories because I was doing it all in Hemingway land, you know. So I think that moment where you say, boy, I, in order for me to get at my good stuff, I have to let the whole package in. And that is personality, you know, whatever. Like, I'm a little perverse. I, like, I, um, I tend to go there when I'm nervous, you know. <laughs> or or, um, or I'm, I'm very much addicted to humor. If I'm, all my life, I was trying to date somebody, I'd be funny. You know, somebody trying to break up with me, I'd make a few jokes. And so, uh, so, that, so that got in, yeah. and, that's, and it's still happening, even now. You know, I'm working on something now that's not quite as funny, and it's really scary territory to not have that crutch to lean on anymore. Right. You know? And you see what else you might have. Yeah, I want to talk about humor, but I also want to... That, that moment where you, you kind of figured out that you weren't Hemingway and mm-hmm. that, that you were George Saunders mm-hmm. in your writing is, is fascinating to me because I feel like, as writers, that's... You know that's what we're trying to do, and and it's so hard to figure 
figure that out, figure yeah. out your, your own voice. And I just wonder if you could talk a little more about that. Like how, how you, yeah. did, it, did you know like when it clicked? You were like, oh, yeah, this I, is... Yeah, I did actually. I mean, you know what? For me, what happened was I had been keeping humor out of my stories, keeping pop culture, keeping perversity. I was really trying to write like a, um, a nice realist, which I don't... I love realism, but I can't... I just can't do it. So um, what actually what happened was we had our kids. My car broke down. Uh, my best friend came to town and said the, the best thing I'd written was something I'd written seven years before that was really crazy and kind of funny. And uh, so, oh, and I'd written this big novel, this big realist, earnest novel about a wedding in Mexico that kind of had a bit of James Joyce about it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the title of that was La Boda de Eduardo, which I think means like Ed's wedding, you know. But... <laughs> So I, it was a 700-page book that I then cut down to 400, and I was writing it late at night, and you know everybody was, my wife was paying for it, you know, with my absences and all, and I gave it to her, and she just did that wonderful wifely thing where she just went. Oh. <laughs> I look, I was watching her reading, and she did. She went. Oh. <laughs> she was on about page four, you know. And, I went, oh. <laughs> and um, so it's funny now, but 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 something clicked, you know, something clicked, and it was really I was 33, and I could feel the door of writing closing because we had kids and I didn't want to be a poor writer. I didn't want to be a, you know, like a tech writer forever making no money. And I was, and, uh, and it was just that desperate, you know, energy of really wanting to accomplish something. Uh, almost like if you're getting your butt kicked in an alley and you notice that you had one hand behind your back. And for me, that was, I was, I was not giving into my natural, the, the way I'm naturally entertaining. I was doing it every day at work, but in writing, I wasn't doing it. So right. I went into a, I had a conference call and in this kind of ragged state, you know, where you just reach the bottom of the well, I wrote this, these kind of silly Susian poems that were quite funny and perverse and insane. Brought those home, and I heard my wife laughing sincerely from the other one. First time she, you know, had any kind of pleasant reaction to my work in a long time. <laughs> and that was really, it was mind-blowing, you know. To, it was just like, oh, I know how to do that, you know. And then thereafter, the, the feeling was, if I wrote in that mode, I always knew what to do. I always had a strong opinion. Uh, and it was just like a complete liberation. It happened in like a two-day period. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a moment like that or did you kind of... What, what were your early bad I feel like I'm like? still struggling with it. Like I, my voice... Well, and I, you know, I want to ask you about voice too because I feel like um, I have to find the voice for a story and sometimes figuring that out gets confused with figuring out my own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you have such a profusion of voices in your stories and you, you sort of, you, you said that this one kind of started with that, yeah. that, you know, more literate voice in the, the juxtaposition of those. Do, does a lot of your writing start with the voice? You... Pretty much all, I, I think. All the stuff that I trust. It's, it's just a feeling like, uh, I don't know, when we were kids in, in Chicago, we would uh, we weren't that athletic, <laughs> understatement of the year. But we, but we would, we would do a lot of sort of stand-up improv, kind of goofy, nerdy stuff. And that was a real, in that little tiny, <laughs> you know, terrible crowd. That was a, a badge of honor to be able to, you know, you could do the voice of your fucking uncle. <laughs> hey, that's good, you know. Uh, so, so we did a lot of that, and I think that was that. That comes into my work all the time. Just to, so um, seeing what voice is available and urgent at a given moment is part of it. And so in other words, you say, well, what can I do? What voice can I reliably produce? Do it, then find out who it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of acting. I mean, it's totally like acting. Yeah. And that, that's, I wanted to be an actor when I was in high school, but at that time it wasn't cool. So I couldn't, I, I didn't do it. But I, but I think the thing is though, I, th- you know, I was reading, uh, what's the story? Highway. Along the highways. Yeah. yeah. A wonderful story of Nick's that I read today. And for the first time I was so blown away by it. And what I thought there was, you know, it's not, 
like you're doing something high-level voice work, which is to be inside a character's head and precisely tell us where he is without hyperbole. And I can't, that's something I can't do. And that did an amazing work for me in that story, you know. So yeah. it's, I think everybody has to work to, with what they have. And it's, that's part of the process is to find out what you have. You know, you're obviously a, a wonderful observer, you know, of, right. of human beings. And, and, you know. Well, and it's interesting because I feel like some of your stories are so deeply into a, the, the character's head. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you, you have such a wonderful ability to follow that, that um, uh, the, the thought that you know goes back and forth, mm. um, and you know I'm thinking of the the, um, the barber's unhappiness, mm. and you know, and he you know he loves he sort of hates himself for liking this woman, likes this woman, it, it just it it's a it's a neurotic kind of thing, yeah. but um, but it's it's so energetic and it pulls you right through the story. Yeah. Um, that guy was actually I based him on a guy in our town when our kids were little, and he was just as I described him, and he would ogle every woman. On a side of a bus, you know, in a wheelchair, whatever, female dog, hey. And, uh, and I watched him for about two years from across the street at this bus stop, and I thought, I want to get that guy. And uh, so I wrote this story, and, and that was one where I got stuck in the middle. And this is, in, you know, a case of my own stuff stopping me because I had such a condescending attitude. I knew so well who he was that this story was just a series of kicks at first, you know. And then at some point in the middle, it froze up. And it was because the story form was saying, I am not for kicking. That's not what I do. You can go write a satire piece if you want, or you can go beat them up, you know, but, but I am not for kicking. And so it was only when I started to put some of myself in him that the story, you know, there had to be some hope that this schmuck could change. And without me putting that in there, it, it, it couldn't move, you know. So I, I wrote a story, and it's still pretty negative, but he, there's a possibility he might find a way to love. So... And uh, so when the story came out in the New Yorker, we were in that town. We moved away and came back. And uh, I saw that guy. And I thought, I thought, wow, what uh, writers are such jerks. I don't know you. I just crucified you in a national magazine. You, uh, you know? And I thought, that's terrible. That's really terrible. So we're walking by. It's my wife, who's very pretty, and my two daughters, who were just little girls. And uh, as we walked by, he kind of turned and went, ladies? And I, I thought, I'm better than I thought, you know? Well, well. Um, one of the odd details in that story is that he doesn't have toes. Where, yeah. where does that come from? Well, that's a good question. I, I, um, this is, I'm not the most subtle person. So when I realized that he was not sympathetic to the reader, I just cut off his toes. <laughs> really? I, I was looking for some Chekhovian detail that would incline you towards pity. And I thought, oh, yeah, he's born without toes on one foot. And it worked. <laughs> Because then, you know, it was, I mean, that was just, literally, it was just my stupid sense of humor coming out. And then it made this nice moment where, he, where he's harshly judgmental of all women. If they're not perfect, he doesn't, that's why he's, you know, 48 and unmarried. And, um, and yet, he's got this terrible physical flaw that he's very self-conscious about. So those two things started talking back and forth. And even though the, the you know, the, the thing was cartoonish, it kind of did a certain work in making him, making him go, oh, well... I don't know what to think about you. you know? It's a terrific story. No, it's another thanks. one that yeah. totally stayed with me. Um, talk about like humor when you're, you, you, you. Was there a lot of humor in your family? Were they, yeah. they all jokers or on both sides? My dad's family is from Chicago, and my mom's is from Texas, and they're both uh, hilarious in different modes. Um, but a lot of that voice stuff that people would do, and I think probably a lot of soothing of situations through humor. You know, right? Yeah. Yeah, so humor can be used in so many different ways as as a way of 
putting away things that are difficult yes. or as, as, as a, a way of confronting it? Yeah, and I think we use both, actually. You know, and I, and I, I still do, actually. You know, the, I, I think with humor, the thing I love about it is it's kind of... Um, I think humor happens when you, when you turn your mind to what's actually going on and say it. You know, um, or when, especially in a story, when there's something that you're doing slightly wrong, the, the story can, go, can turn and make fun of it. You know, in other words, it's sort of a self-correcting animal if you've got humor going. I mean, you can do it with, non, with, with straight writing, too, but um, I don't You know, I, in some ways, it's bullshit because I just love doing it. You know, and under stress, I, I always do that. And, I, and so this is what I mean by, you know, you, you, you have to do what you, you can make live. I had, I had a conversation with that guy, uh, Michael Silverblatt from uh, Bookworm. It's a great radio show in L.A., and he's made me cry three times off, off mic, luckily. But, but he said to me, he said, you know, I think I see a lot of young people imitating your work. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, uh, it worries me. I, he said, no, don't, he said, don't get me wrong. He said that, that a lot of them, though, they, they get the cruelty, and that's what they get. And I, I was like, cruelty? Come on, I'm a compassionate writer. And he said, no. Nah. He said, your, your stories come alive when you're being cruel, either when a character is being cruel to a character or you're being cruel to a character. So I had to think about that, and it's absolutely true, you know. Right, yeah. but it's, I mean, there is the cruelty, but it's, well, you know, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about a little bit is just, you know, it's a, one of the interviews with you I read, the, the, uh, you and the interviewer were talking about these Amazon reviews of 10th of December, and sort of, like, it, that book has brought in readers that you haven't had before, and, and some of the reviews... And I didn't go and look at them because they would just make me mad. But there were, you know, apparently people were complaining that there was dark yeah. work. And it was, one of the things that well, I was surprised because I, I read 10th of December and I thought, wow, this is a lot lighter than... than it is George. lighter. <laughs> it is. It is lighter. Lighter. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, um, I, 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 got, I was telling you earlier, I got a letter from a woman in Vermont after when I was at... The, this book did so well and I was feeling so good, you know. And I got a letter and th- this book was in it and it said, I won't have this in my house. It's, you know, it's, per, it's perverse, and I don't like it. And, and, and the problem was she was so articulate. She used affect and effect perfectly, you know. And really, so, um, I, you know, and it made me think about this darkness. And, and I, had a, I have a very nice, like a six-page explanation I sent her. Um, but the bottom line is I don't think it's ours to say. You know, if, if you get, I mean, anyone who's a writer knows how hard it is to get energy in a paragraph. It's really hard. Uh, it's okay. It's easy to get politeness and political correctness and proportion and you know, but to get energy is really a hard thing. So I guess my feeling is, if darkness is the way I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it. Now I've developed a very elaborate rationale, and the the best answer I can come up with that I'm not sure I believe is you know, but it's nice is a Chekhov has this line uh, is uh, in the story we're going to work on tomorrow. Uh, Every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet with a hammer to remind him by his constant tapping that not everyone is happy and sooner or later life will show him its claws. So I think dark fiction can be a way of saying, well, right now we're happy and, and content and well-fed, but we can look around and see that that's a very conditional thing. So let's do a little thought experiment and put a human being under high stress. But I'm not sure that's really why I do it. You know, it's, right. yeah. it's, it seemed to me that in this book, the endings... 
um, there's there's more of a hopefulness in the endings. Is is that something like is that a conscious choice, or that's just kind of where the no, fiction goes for you now? It just goes. Yeah, because this book was written you know, over 14 years actually, and uh, so it's not a. I think what happens is I find really interesting is if you're deep into the craft of it, then you don't have to make those kind of calls. The, the, the story makes those calls. So, for example, there's a story in here called Victory Lap, which is an abduction story. And, uh, you know, so you, I'm writing. I, I actually meant it to be, uh, I was trying to get away from violence, actually. And this, I wrote a story about this young girl in her room, kind of imitating Chekhov, and this story called uh, After the Opera, I think. And uh, I was going to just write that. And I got to the end, and then nothing was happening. So slowly this story becomes an abduction story. You know? um, but, but, you know, when you're writing that, you're like, well, okay, so I'm, I'm only eight pages in. I don't know how it's going to work out. Uh, I have to be open to both. And then when I got to the moment of truth, um, it was just more aesthetically interesting to try to have it not work out, to have her be saved. Uh, partly I had, I had, you know, um, what is it, uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find in my mind, and that Joyce Carol story, Where Are You Going, Where You've Been, and there's a John Barth story, I can't remember the name of it, but, but in all of these there's, a, there's an a, attempt at abduction or rape that succeeds. And I thought, well, okay, so I'm in that lineage. Maybe I, the new thing, the artistic the interesting thing is to try to not do that. And then it becomes really interesting. How do you do it in a way that's not bullshit? You know? but, but in every one of these stories, I got to a point where I knew what the dark, sort of auto-dark ending was and had kind of worn that out in previous stories and also had kind of worn it out in my life. I'm 55. You know, I've had a lot of good luck. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that um, that valence should exist in my stories, that, you know, the, the valence that's wonderful, that life can be good. Yeah. Uh, and that's technically harder, I think, actually, for me is anyway. The, the other thing that it seemed to me there was more of in this book, in, in the best word I can think of to describe it is grace. There's a kind of grace in these stories. Um, like, and I think it's most explicit at the end of... Um, the, the death of Furpro is... is it, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But you know, I, I, saw that, I felt like I saw that evolution yeah, through the books. Yeah, yeah. But it's the same thing. It's sort of like, I, I think on my mind is the idea that um, uh, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm kind of tired, so I'm going to go into generalizing mode, so this will be fun. Uh, I'll be like USA Today. We're eating more shrimp. Um, but I, I do think that I, I, I'm, and see if you agree with me, I'm aware that in American art, there is a reflexive swerve to the dark because we sort of think dark is sophisticated. And it kind of is, given our culture, because our culture tends to go, oh, dark, I don't, I've heard of that, but I've never seen it. <laughs> so part of our job is to go, well, look over there, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I think that becomes habitual sometimes, you know. Uh, I think in a lot of TV shows, it's habitual, you know, like the shows where the suburbs are so evil. Everyone's stoned and cheating in my suburb, Yeah. I don't. I grew up in a suburb, and it wasn't that, you know. Right. So, so then you want to sort of see. Well, are we just anything we do habitually is probably not good. So, for habitually dark, that's lazy. Habitually optimistic, that's lazy. So, for, in these stories, I kept trying to think, how, how have you found life? And I found grace to be very evident, you know. And um, about t- ten years ago, uh, my wife and I became Buddhists, and I found that that practice, as any good spiritual practice actually changes the way your mind works. And suddenly my relation to so-called negative phenomenon was changing, you know. So that was great, a great thing to have happen at this late in life. But right. I think that kind of made it in there a little yeah. bit, you know. Yeah, I've taught a, a class at Lighthouse about faith and fiction and um, 
you know, one of the things that was striking to me in this book is, you know, the, the characters, in, in, at least in some cases, you know, have a relationship with a god, and, and um, it, which is something that I, is another thing that's lacking in a lot of contemporary fiction. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, and, and you feel a little bit exposed saying it, but, you know, to be 55, uh, and, you know, and I'm at the stage now where the generation before me is now, like my aunts and uncles, and they're, and you know, uh, older, they're starting to get really sick or die. And so you kind of feel like, you know, you're, I'm walking towards a cliff. Well, good thing I don't have to go over that cliff. Oh, you know, <laughs> Fred, you know, and, and uh, Fred was at my wedding. You know, he, he danced all night. What the sh- what? You know, so um, it seems very strange in our culture that what we have in, you know, we, that's a big question. What happens when I die? Can I die with dignity? You know, kind of, have I lived correctly? And it seems weird that, at least in, in here, this is the, generalizing thing but it seems to me that in our time in my lifetime we've we've degraded or devalued conventional religion because it was kind of full of shit and there was a lot of sexual abuse you know in my church uh uh also because it's it's been used for bad purposes by lunkheads you know oh good we're over that but what have we replaced it with and actually i think what we've replaced it with is materialism defined not so much by getting stuff, which that's part of it, but materialism meaning we believe that the world is exactly the size of our understanding of it. Hmm. Not likely, you know, but we believe it. So so I'm mm, getting crotchety and a little more willing to call foul on that. You know, there's got to be, we all have to have some basic fear about death coming and some fear that we squandered our lives or haven't loved people well enough okay what's the answer you know don't yeah. know but it's a pretty good set of questions yeah related to that in my mind is the, the question of of mystery like allowing some mystery in your fiction um and you know i think my f- favorite story in 10th of december was home yeah. in part because it has a couple of those passages in it um that the logic of them is is dreamlike to me and they the, there's i my engineer brain kind of stutters to a stop and can't figure out how they fit exactly, but they feel right. Um, and, uh, and they were just really... And the other thing that I love about that story is, I mean, the last line just made, literally made me cry. I mean, it's such a great ending. Um, but, I mean, do you have a feel for, like, you know, how much, how much mystery do you leave for the, the reader to... To puzzle over, not, only on, only sort of on the ground, you know. Which this is why I'm a total fanatic for revision. And I think you don't, you everything that's available to you as a writer is going to, for me anyway, comes to me through that process of revising. Because you're, you know, you're doing sort of like I always think it's a little bit like if uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll name three scenarios. I give you a house, and before I did it, I decorated it for you. You get that house, pretty nice. But you go in there and you're going to feel a little bit like, oh, weird painting, George. You know, uh, this bed is too hard or too soft. Whatever, you know, you're going to have some feeling that it's a hotel kind of feeling. All right, so that's not the greatest. Let's have a second model. Second model is I give you an empty house, a credit card, and eight hours to furnish it to your taste, whatever you like. So you go rushing to the mall and you do all you can eight hours. And the house is much more like you than it was before. Now, the third model, which is sort of analogous to revision, is... Uh, okay, take that house that you furnished, and now every day for the next five years, you get to take one item and at your leisure replace it with something you like better. You know, 
So after five years, that house is going to be so much like you, you know, much more like you than you could imagine at any point in time. It's responded to you in all your different moods and all your... So that's, a, to me, a well-revised story is like that. And it's always producing surprises of a fineness that you never could have imagined in advance. That's the payoff. So I find that my stories are much smarter than I am, much kinder than I am, much more kind of weird and energetic and perverse and uh, contrary than I am. But it's only because, you know, you come back to them a thousand times, you're eventually going to get everything that you are in there. And those moments of mystery come there. Basically because you get to a moment that's not mysterious, and something in your mind goes, hey, if you do that, it becomes mysterious. Oh, I didn't see that the first 800 times I saw it. <laughs> you know, and then you, then you, so it's. But the trap, you know, for, especially for younger, or, you know, writers who are just starting to, the process is, you know, that's the part they love is the, the mystery. And then they construct these stories that can be all mystery and all ambiguity. Yeah. And you don't know, and that, right. that doesn't work either. Yeah, in, in my classes, I always say there's, there's ambiguity and there's underindication. You know, they're very different things, you know. Like if you, I remember one workshop we had, and we got to the end, and uh, everybody was doing that workshop polite thing. We're like, well, I really love the flow. You've done great things with the colors, you know, purple. I love it great. And then, and I, you know, I had to be the bad guy, so I said, okay, can I ask a question? Did the brother have sex with his sister or not? And everybody went, <sighs> you know, nobody knew. No, and it was, it was, it either did or didn't happen, and, and whether it did or didn't was important to the story, but nobody knew, and nobody had, would you know, call fall on it. So I think what I see a lot of talented writers do is they recognize that subtlety is an attribute of art, so they just under-indicate a little bit, and that's easy. That's so fun. Usually you can go right to a place and go, this is where you need to decide, right there, yeah. and then it comes alive. So it's a good instinct, I think, to be overly subtle. But right. Um, we're going to throw this to, to the audience Real quick here, there was you know there was one question um, that I I want to I, I want to bring up Bartleme and ask if you know, he because he's an I guess I bring this up in part because I've I've told people that your your writing reminds me of Bartleme and uh, I often get this this like why kind of response and to me it seems very obvious and I, just, I wonder is do you, is he an influence for you is he well he was and you know I I because of my engineering background I'm my reading is really spotty. And I find that there are writers who I've only read a couple things of who influenced me a lot. And he was one. I haven't, I haven't read all of his work by any stretch. Um, but actually, the influence was sort of off the page. I got accepted to Houston and to Syracuse as, as a grad student. And so it was Bartholomew and Tobias Wolf. And uh, I read all their work, you know. And, and at that time, I didn't really understand Bartholomew. I could see he was, you know, formidable, but I didn't get it. Uh, but I read a story of Toby's called Wingfield, which just blew my mind. I don't know. It was something about the heart in it that really. And then Toby called me and uh, talked to me for like an hour on the phone, you know. And I called Houston after that, like, well, where's my call from Don, you know. And, and, uh, and I, I called the, I, and I, ta- I got a secretary and I said, hi, George Saunders. He said, yeah. I said, well, I, I've been accepted to your program. She goes, yeah. Uh, well, I guess I was wondering if you could tell me something about my financial aid. No, not really. Ah. Uh, and uh, Mr. Barthelmey, yes, he, he teaches here. You know, so, so I, so I kind of just went to Syracuse because of that one story and because Toby called me. But, <laughs> but then years later, the school is a story that really kind of blew my mind because it's so silly and funny and not real. And it, it does something that I love, which is, okay, um, we th- tend to think that a story is a linear 
representation of reality. And by looking at reality together, we go, oh, reality. But in Bartholomew's stories, they're not linear, they're not real. And it skips that whole step of looking at real stuff and puts you right to the emotional or, or psychological terrifying truth. Vonnegut does the same thing for me. So in other words, you make this elaborate, weird, exaggerated machine that cannot be mistaken for real life, and when you press a button, it spits out heartbreak. You know? that, that I love. I, I just went back and uh, read a story, an old story of mine that I hadn't read in a long time, and it was such a mess. It's Brad Kerrigan, American. It's so fast, so manic. I couldn't even follow. I had to read the first paragraph four times to figure out what was going on. Like, did they, lop, did they leave something off? But when I got done with it, I felt like I, I like that younger writer, not because he's, he's uh, a good craftsman, because actually he's a mess, but because it, there were a couple moments that stung me uh, because they were saying stuff that I'm still worried about, you know, about, like, say, how we live in, in our happy lives when such misery is going on. And it kind of reached through that weird mess of a story and just popped me once, you know. Uh, so that was, I, I would tolerate a lot of bad craftsmanship for one punch like that, or a lot of yeah. surrealism for one punch like yeah. that. Yeah. You, you've talked in the past about the, the metaphor of uh, a story as a black box that you go into, and the right. job of the story is to make sure you're different when you come out on the other Yeah, side. and you don't have to necessarily know what's happening in that black box. Yeah. I mean, you're managing it, but you, what you, want the, the, you want the reader to go into that block, black box, have something happen that's not trivial, and then shoot her out kind of you know, whatever, maybe, maybe, I mean, people always have, they say, oh, you're more, you're less lonely, you're more alive, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, but mostly, I think of like a roller coaster, when you get off the roller coaster, you're not supposed to say, oh, I like that second section, <laughs> you're supposed to be like, oh, my God, what the, f-? you know, so that, that would be the goal, you know, yeah. but, mm. All right. Um, well, I could talk to you all no, night, so but, <laughs> such great questions. let's, um, can we bring up the house lights, and, do we have mics to go out, or are we going to shout them? All right, we're going to shout. And uh, stick your hand in the air, and we'll, we'll point to you. Yes, I see one there. Um, it's just... Uh, oh, yeah, where does the interest in theme parks come from? And it was a painful incident at Disneyland. And no, it, you know what? Really, it was. It was um, actually it was just a. Mecha- it was kind of what we talked about earlier. I had been writing these Hemingway-esque pieces, or you know, kind of realist things, uh, and they 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 didn't work. And uh, so I found that if I just well, actually, the truth is, and before I ever went to grad school, I'd written one really crazy piece about a theme park, and I just wrote it out of a dream, and I. Had, had a couple bottles of Boone's Farm and wrote this really silly thing that got me into Syracuse. And then I sort of disavowed it. Too silly. Uh, then many years later, at that, that crisis point that I was talking about, I just went back and wrote almost a line-by-line knockoff of it in a different theme park. Uh, and what I found was if I took the... Um, if I took that Hemingway love, you know, for serious stoic prose and, and the most efficient sentences, and then dropped it into a theme park, the earnestness got... Dis- Disabled, basically. You know, if you say, you know, it was a sunny day in the Virgin Mary theme park, you're free. You're free of Hemingway, you know. So really, it was just a mechanical thing. And I remember on that book, I kept saying, my God, am I going gonna, gonna to write a book about theme parks? Eh. But every time I would get stuck, I'd say, well, make up a theme park, you know. And, and it was really easy and fun for me to make up physical details. So, you know, I tell my students that it's not, fun is not beside the point. You know, if you're going to produce something, you have to have fuel, and fun is a real good one. Something you can, 
you know, if you can reliably do beautiful nature descriptions, there should be a lot of trees in your book. Not because you like trees or you have something you want to say about trees, but because you can crank out the trees. You know, so that was really just a mechanical fix on my own kind of, uh, you know, tight-ass nature at that point. A question? Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about a favorite compliment that you received from a reader. Well endowed. That was one. <laughs> no, no, no. No, that's, that's cheap. Um, and I've never gotten that one, actually. That's a, um, no, I think uh, the, the one... I've, I've, I got a letter the other day from someone who said uh, that, he, you know, he... That's kind of embarrassing. But he, he said that, um, that I was well endowed. No, he said that I... That when he read my stories, he felt like going on trying to be a better person. So that's pretty good. You know, that's a nice, nice scene to hear. Uh, and so that, that speaks to this last bit. You know, if you can do something on the page, even if it's messy and it breaks the rules or it doesn't know the rules or it's flawed, um, if there's that just quick moment of spark between you and the reader where, you know, when we start reading a story, you're kind of a little bit uh, like someone who's going on a date and doesn't expect much. You're a little in yourself. Like, yeah, well, this, won't be, this story won't be about me and my real stuff. And, every, and when a great writer engages you, they start reeling you in, and suddenly you get that feeling, like, oh, my God, this is about exactly my stuff. You know, That's the moment that I would really aspire to, where I don't really care how I get there, but I want to meet you at your best and have you go, wow, that guy saw me somehow. You know, that, that would be the goal. You know. so. Question? No, I'm better than I was. I'm, no, that's a great question. I think it's, yes, I think it's, it's organic to who I am in a certain way, like because of voices and because of, I'm very in, curious about other people. Um, and the, uh, on a side note, this is, this is a truth that isn't often told in MFA land because it's painful. But, um, okay, when I look at the writers that I've had at Syracuse who've gone on to do things, they walked in powerful. Like I see Cheryl Strait is here. Cheryl, you couldn't talk to Cheryl for five minutes without feeling her, her moral power. And you couldn't read a paragraph of hers without knowing this was something very special. So, you know, we, the MFA model sometimes assumes it's all craft. Give me a crow. I'll teach them to write, you know. But it's not true, actually. Now, we don't... The, the, the other thing that MFA programs sometimes seem to think when they're bad ones is... I'm the professor. I'll tell you if you got it, kid. That's such bullshit. You, they can't tell. They might think they can. I don't believe. Maybe, maybe some can. I certainly can't. So the thing is, you, your, your deal is to say, one, it's, talent is something that some people really have in spades, and you can't fake it. But we don't really know if we have it until we work it, you know? Uh, I'm guessing that before Cheryl wrote those stories that I read, she had done a lot of work, and what she's done then and since, and the reason people love her so much, is because she, through her work, she's found a conduit to that deep place in herself, and it comes out onto the page. 
that's the work you have to do. So I, I think it's... But on, on one more thing about your question is I think actually people can do it, this, this voice thing and this... Thing. Because what I do when I'm doing a 15-year-old girl, I don't say, how, what does a 15-year-old girl think? Like, I think, what did I think like when I was 15? Change the gender. A dying guy. I, I can do a dying guy because I am one, basically. You know. Uh, so, so the idea that, and this is a very hopeful idea, that actually your your natural compassion and curiosity, turned on your own process, your own mind, uh, is going to be a pretty good approximation. Are you stingy? Yes, everyone in here is so stingy, a little stingy. So then all you got to do is go. All right, let me see. Let's pretend I'm a little more stingy. You know, I heard that uh, great Israeli writer Ek Carat talking about his parents were both survivors of the Holocaust, and he said one time he went to his dad and he said, "Dad, I know I could never write about the Holocaust. It's like I don't know what it was like." And his dad said, "Nonsense. If you ever been hungry, ever been cold, ever been scared, just turn it up." You know. So I think I think we actually can do some version of that. You know. One more question. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously. It sounds like the lady who wrote you the letter about that book and said she wouldn't have it in her house. You wrote her a very uh, earnest uh, mm-hmm. response back. I yeah. was wondering if you could uh, talk about the role of criticism as a play when you're writing. I mean, obviously, you've got to stay true to yourself and you can't just you know, uh, change because of someone's opinion. But then, by the same token, uh, sometimes people have very poignant things to say. And yeah. Yeah, you know, I, that's a great question. I, I went on a trip. I did some travel writing for GQ, and I went on a trip to Africa with, with Bill Clinton, and I got a chance to interview him. And so I asked him, how did you survive that period where, you know, and people really hate him. A lot of people really hate him still. How do you deal with criticism? And he said, actually, that Hillary had given him some advice during that thing. Well, I'm sure she gave him a lot of it. But, but um, no, but this, I mean, this is, this is the thing that made me realize they have a very high-functioning marriage because he, I, I said, during the, he said, yeah, yeah. And what she said was that when somebody gives you criticism, someone, you know, takes a shot at you with a shotgun of criticism and it comes at you, the natural thing to do is duck and cover and don't accept it, deny it, hate the person who did it. But she said the powerful thing to do is just spread your chest out and take it. Let it hit you. And then... In time, most of it will fall off because it just doesn't ring your bell. The two or three things that stick, she said, you'd be so stupid not to take it. You know? So I kind of try to talk to my workshop about that. Like, workshop is a kind of a naturally sloppy critiquing mechanism because nobody's as deep in the story as you are. So, but open yourself up to everything that's said and see what's still around two or three weeks later. And most of that stuff is stuff that you already knew. It's not that Frank generated this thing in straighten you out is that you already knew it Frank said it and you know so I, so I I'm very defensive actually and, and kind of sensitive to criticism um, but at the moment of truth I don't actually care much you know again because you know where your energy is and if someone says as they have you know you're, you, uh, you do X wrong or Y wrong I, I'm, I am aware of that when I'm writing but I'm like well that's all I got you know and so yeah yeah we have time for one more question Mike one more? All right. Yeah. What? I'm sorry. Oh. 
Yeah. Yeah, the question was, how much fun was it to come up with this spider? A lot. A lot. It's really, it's, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Because I, I, I think I had just finished one of the more kind of straightforward stories in the book. And when I got into this one, I'm like, oh, we're in this territory again. You know, where you come up with a concept that's maybe a little nasty. And then the story says, well, I'm sorry to inform you this, but he's got to have sex with a second girl. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, so there's, there's something about that that's really enjoyable because you're, you're, it's, it's like an engineering mindset. If, this, if the experiment says you must do this, you have to do it. So, I, so it's really fun. And the trademarks, I, you know, the, and the commercials and all, I can love. I mean, I have to kind of be careful because it can become a real tick, you know. And, and so, but, yeah. Well, thank Another you. 20 years of it and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.